Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And I'm happy to welcome Peter Pischke, who is a Young Voices contributor. And Peter, I'm going to ask you if you would just fill in a few of the blanks about who you are and what you do. And then we have a great topic to discuss. Hi, Brian. Uh, yeah, my name is Peter Pischke. I am a independent journalist associated with Young Voices. I write a lot on disability and health issues, but I also cover uh, tech a fair amount as well as cultural stuff. You uh, might have seen my writing at The Federalist or elsewhere. And today I'm excited to talk about uh, the problems of big tech and, and certain legislation <laughs> that I don't think are going to help matters much. You know, I'll admit, I have beef with big tech. And, and I feel like in many ways, uh, big tech has has partnered with government or is, is colluding with government to, to silence, you know, voices of dissent. However, you have a very timely warning in this article I'm looking at in counterpunch.org that uh, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act is a bad idea in almost every way. First of all, what exactly is this act purporting to fix? So the AICO, or ICO, uh, is supposedly supposed to stop big tech and punish them from using self-preferential data. So if Google has information they get through their advertising and that they would then use it to benefit themselves, this would supposedly punish it. Or Amazon using your information to benefit one of their Amazon basic products. Okay, They're taking information that they may get from a business interacting with them or a consumer, and they're going to use that to help themselves. In, in theory, what the PR says that this act would then stop those people from doing those bad things and thus punishing consumers I mean sorry thus stop punishing consumers and small businesses unfortunately as is often with Congress the first thing you should always ask about any piece of legislation is will this thing do the thing they say it's going to do and unfortunately for us uh, the answer to that is a big fat no so I, I'm hearing echoes of, uh, of Bastiat, that which is seen, that which is not seen. Uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the intent may be, well, this is going to punish big tech for things that it's doing that, uh, that uh, you know, we don't like. But you're, you're telling me that there are some unseen things that may not be as apparent to, at first blush. Well, first of all, why, why the need to, to rein in big tech or uh, the perceived need? Because I'm hearing this from a lot of different angles. I mean, is there, is there legitimate wrongdoing on the part of big tech? I, th- I think there is. I think whether you're concerned about free speech issues and censorship, like with uh, the social media platforms like Twitter or Facebook, I think also small businesses often have been um, taken advantage of on pl- a platform like Amazon. The, the question you have to ask is, is what's being proposed going to fix the problem or make it worse? And is the, can the free market, if we enable it, provide a better outcome? Or does the government need to step in? With antitrust in the U.S., it's based on not just um, – stopping something that has what we, we call a monopoly, but does that monopoly hurt consumers? And so those are pretty strict rules to really make anything like antitrust happen. Antitrust, the U.S. doesn't have a super great record anyways. Um, so they lean on uh, legislation like this, and they like to use big BR, PR pushes saying, oh, we're finally going to stop big tech. You, this is why you should donate to my campaign. for you know, Sign up for my email. Give me five bucks. Um, I, ICO is, is ridiculously cynical. Going through it, it made me laugh out loud a bit because it is literally designed only to hurt the companies Congress doesn't like and benefit everyone else. It only affects companies that have 50 million monthly users or capitalization greater than $550 billion, which is a lot of money. Wow. And that only covers like seven companies. 
So they're just the big ones they don't like. So like Facebook, which is now Meta, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, etc. But it, it lets people like brick and mortar, like Walmart, which is a juggernaut unto itself, get away. It doesn't affect a company like PayPal. Um, it, it's basically designed so that it benefits the company Congress kind of likes and it hurts the co- companies Congress doesn't. And and the punishment is here's the crazy part. The punishment for it is such a vague mechanism that one they don't define what unfair behavior is. Two, the punishment is up to fifteen percent of all yearly revenue for a company. Fifteen percent. I mean that's that's hugely exorbitant. That, that, that's that's a lot of money. And the the disincentives that come from this when you when you one you don't have a clearly defined thing that you're going to do wrong when it's the the federal trade commission and they get to decide what is wrongdoing and two it's going to be such a high punishment basically it tells a company like amazon or apple hey we are just not going to bother with this stuff anymore so gone is amazon basics um gone is some of the protections you get with a platform like ios the the work when they work with smaller companies or providers for services or programs their incentives to go for that are just wiped away and so there's a good chance that this thing were to become actual law and it has a decent shot of doing it this and a few other bills that are also terribly bad the damage it could do for consumers and for tech freedom generally is opposite than what we've been sold on by the members of the senate that have signed on to this bill so i don't want to sound cynical but i have to ask who is sponsoring this legislation and who are the special interests that may be behind you know sponsoring this kind of legislation in other words who benefits um, there are big name Democrats and Republicans on it. Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley is a major co-sponsor. Another one that's up there is uh, Senator John Kennedy. You know, it's it's funny when the Washington Examiner approached uh, Senator Grassley and be like, "Look, people are a little concerned about this bill." And by the way, why is it that only the FTC can can take people to task and not you know the people that were actually harmed, like these small businesses? If you guys were serious about doing this, then why won't you let my small company? sue Amazon according to this law. Well, Chuck Grassley said, quote, well, if we make carve-outs for all the pro-consumer features, then the bill would be useless, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) So um, who are the people that benefit? So it's going to be big companies. It's just not the biggest companies. So PayPal is a massive behemoth. I uh, live here in Sioux Falls, but I've also lived in Omaha. PayPal is huge in Omaha. That's a major, big company. Um, it's it basically they just really want to hurt the big online ones that everyone likes to talk about, you know, Fang, etc. But but it doesn't. I mean, there are a lot of bad players and there are a lot of players in big tech. And this one, it just you know, it's, it's just picking winner and losers. I mean, nothing new there. Okay, Peter, tell me this: Why don't we turn to the market more? I mean, are are there places in your opinion where it's legitimate for government to step in with antitrust actions, or, or is this something that that could be better solved through the market itself and people simply saying, you know what, that's not fair. We're not going to give our business to these companies. Theoretically, there there might exist some kind of situation where that would need when when you have an intrinsic intransigent uh, monopoly of some kind that has so corrupted the system that you can't break it free any other way. Some people have had concerns about that for, say, Facebook, for the social media space. But you have to notice that even though today things may look very concrete, in the long run, they may not be. We're even seeing this with Facebook right now. They just had the biggest loss in the history of their company. Their, their ad dollars are drying up, relatively speaking. 
Um, you know, time is the great uh, equalizer, and a lot of things can change. And you know, as Congress are terrible as fortune tellers. Never ask them to read your palms. They're just they're horrible at it. They couldn't even get one of those nine ninety nine deals on the internet um, <laughs> because we don't know what the future is going to hold. We 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 can't. It's hard to predict, and we can make things worse by pushing the wrong legislation to make the wrong thing the law, and that will just hurt everything else. It's, that's the problem with all this. We we can't tell what the future is, and so we should always be super careful about what kind of legislation we push through. Yeah, once it's in place. You know, getting it uh, getting it undone if we decide, oh, this isn't working, is is really difficult. Where would you point people to get to good, solid information on this? Uh, I, if you want good information, of course, you can follow my work. But uh, Reason Magazine has done a fair amount of reporting. Um, places like even the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a nonprofit, they've done some good research on it. You know, use your Google News search. Um, even sometimes the mainstream media, they will uh, accidentally fall into actual journalism. But you can find people out there. It's not necessarily easy. The mainstream media isn't great these days for finding reliable information. Even I will admit that. But if you if you really look, you can find the people that will tell you the truth, uh, which is, you know, that's basically what I do as a journalist. I just try to find the truth tellers and read them and learn from it and then report thus from it. Yeah, it may take a little bit uh, extra effort to, to do your homework in that way, but uh, but it's totally worth it. And, and unfortunately, there seem to be a lot of people content to do their baby bird impressions and just, you know, open their mouth wide. OK, go ahead. Spoon feed me whatever I'm supposed to believe. Talk to yeah, me. It, Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and of course, you guys can always, you know, uh, the organization I'm with, Young Voices, that's what we espouse. We espouse truth tellers. We espouse trying to do the right thing, especially when it's unpopular. And that's why I'm really happy to be working with this organization as an independent journalist. All right. Let's tell everybody where they can find your work. Yeah, so you can find my work. Um, I run the Happy Warrior podcast and Substack. Uh, you can find me at Twitter at Happy Warrior P. I, since I'm freelance, I'm all over the place. You can usually find me at Federalist or Reason or Counterpunch or elsewhere. And uh, if you want to hit me up or have questions about any of these issues, uh, be sure to do so. I love talking to people. Okay, we've got a link to your story in the show notes. Uh, this is the story in counterpunch.org. Peter Pischke, thank you so much for being our guest on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you so much, Brian. Back to moving forward with Young Voices. We are pleased to welcome Andy Young. He is a legal fellow at Tech Freedom, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank focused on technology, law, and policy, as well as a contributor to Young Voices. Andy received his law degree from Antonin Scalia Law School in Arlington, Virginia. Andy, great to have you on the program. So great to be here. Thank you. Well, I admit, in the course of my day to day living, I don't spend a great deal of time thinking about the Federal Trade Commission. But uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't spend its time thinking about me, or at least people like me, in, in the work that it does. I'm looking at an article that you have written titled, Congress's Self-Preferencing Prohibition Would Extend an Already Overextended FTC. And Andy, to start out, for people like me who, who don't make this part of our daily dinner table conversation, what exactly does the Federal Trade Commission do? 
Great question. So the Federal Trade Commission's primary responsibilities are really threefold. Uh, the agency polices what are called unfair methods of competition and unfair and deceptive acts or practices. You can think of those mostly as uh, scams, identity theft, data breaches. And then the FTC also focuses on anti-competitive mergers and acquisitions. So that means the FTC blocks deals in which a company wants to buy another company, and that will end up with higher prices for consumers. Interesting. I, I'm I'm still having a hard time deciding whether the FTC are good guys or maybe sometimes good guys, or if that even happens sometimes by accident. Talk to me about the self-preferencing prohibition. Where did this controversy arise, and why is Congress considering um, you know enacting this? Sure. Uh, well, the the idea behind self-preferencing has come about through the the recent focus that Congress has on large technology companies. And the Congress is taking action on self-preferencing in a recent bill that's going through the House and Congress called the American Choice and Innovation Online Act. And the bill describes or rather defines self-preferencing as giving preference to one's own products on a technology platform or excluding or disadvantaging competing products uh, for, that are also trying to compete on that platform Basically, the idea of self-preferencing is Google uh, promoting its own products over others when you search for something on Google search results, just for example. Okay, no, that's that's an excellent example. Um, let me ask you this. In your opinion, what is the, the threshold or what's the point where the FTC rightly should be stepping in and, and exercising its authority? I like to think of the FTC's responsibilities kicking in when there's a clear harm to consumers. So when consumers are being harmed or prices are being driven up or they're being excluded from certain types of comp certain options in the competitive marketplace, that's when the FTC should step in. Uh, whereas with uh, self-preferencing, it's actually it's a newer phenomenon and it's actually unclear whether the self-preferencing really harms consumers. A lot of the focus for self-preferencing is on competitors. How are competitors to Google and Amazon being hurt by the self-preferencing? But there's actually more research that needs to be done, in my opinion, on whether consumers are being harmed. And like you said, whether that threshold is being crossed into FTC land. What well, can I ask who who was uh, the originator of this uh, self-preferencing uh, prohibition? I'm I'm just trying to get a feel for, for where the opposition, you know, to, to, or to, to where the perception of a problem is, is coming from. Uh, the, the bill got introduced by Representative Cicilline. It has bipartisan support, and it really came out of the, um, on the, the, con the study that Congress initiated on online platforms at the end of 2020. And in that report, there were some examples of Google and Amazon uh, promoting their own products over competitors that were trying to rise up on the platform or sell their own products on Amazon and Google's platforms. And politicians have really honed in on that study and those couple of examples of self-preferencing harming competitors. Uh, but again, there's not been too many examples turned up or really hard evidence turned up of um, consumers that have been suffering from Amazon basics being promoted on Amazon searches, for example. Now, Andy, you make a strong case here that the, the FTC already has an awful lot on its plate and that uh, this would, would risk 
putting them, you know, even into into greater, uh, you know, work stress or or, or a greater workload than, than they they can handle. Um, what are some of the things right now that that are taking up the majority of their time? Great question. So uh, when President Biden, uh, when he came into office, one of the first things he did is he swore in Lena Khan, who is the new chairwoman of the commission. And since then, uh, the commission has really set out to aggressively reform a lot of U.S. competition law. So the agency has described a tidal wave of merger filings that the agency is currently facing. So it's looking at tons of deals and deciding whether these mergers are anti-competitive. The agency also recently set out on uh, whether on a rulemaking expedition to decide whether it wants to create rules and regulations on contract terms that may harm competition, specifically uh, non-compete agreements and exclusive contracts. The FTC currently has open cases against Facebook regarding the Instagram and WhatsApp merger. And the FTC recently sued NVIDIA Corporation for its acquisition of arms holdings. Uh, that I could really continue. Uh, that's just a few things on my little bullet-pointed list here. But the agency certainly has its hands full. Most of those activities I described are protecting consumers, like I initially mentioned, you know, blocking mergers. But now with this bill, Congress is asking the FTC to somewhat shift its focus to this uh, self-preferencing. And I think that shift in focus will ultimately harm consumers. Wow. Now, one of the things you point out here is uh, that uh, the the FTC is uh, is already you know stretched. But uh, I'm curious: are, are there special interests? For instance, this sounds like it would it would be a great thing for lawyers. <laughs> and that if there's if there's more action in the courts, why well, the lawyers are going to do really well? Are there are there other special interests who are are players in this uh, in this particular controversy? I think so. I think the honestly the competitors that work on these platforms, there's opportunities for opportunistic plaintiffs to take a look at this bill and uh, see that their products are not are not selling well or are not trending well on Google services or on Amazon services, and then use the bill as an excuse to litigate and try and force Google and Amazon to promote their products in the same way that those companies promote their own products. And uh, the, the bill really invites the FTC and courts to sort of look at algorithms and ranking of content on these internet platforms and really sort of uh, look for negative reasons why the technology companies might have ranked certain content in certain ways when, when really uh, it's not anti-competitive conduct. There's just a lot of inputs that go into these algorithms and ultimately the algorithms spit out that one product should be ranked higher than another. Uh, you so also, I think there are opportunities for opportunistic plaintiffs. And yeah, go ahead. You also point out that, uh, you know, it's it's not a matter of, well, you know, the FTC is just sitting around with time on their hands. It's, you know, they, they have plenty to keep them busy. But it sounds like the, the attitude of those in Congress who are pushing this particular legislation is is not even so much to give them more resources, you know, to do the work they're already doing, which which I think you, you point out. There's some things they do that actually are um that are that are necessary or at least beneficial but this yes. is more like just throwing money at them and saying hey by what by what by the way while you're at it go ahead and do this as well well it's it's interesting because they're actually not throwing more money at the agency oh. so uh not not included in this bill there are some attempts to give the agency more resources but they're not included in this bill specifically so the american choice and innovation online act is really just saying hey ftc in addition to what you're doing we would like you to take a look at self-preferencing. 
And there are no additional resources attached to that request, which is why I think it's uh, truly distracting from the FTC's core responsibilities of protecting consumers from prices going nuts. Is is there also the danger that uh, that legit innovation could be uh, curtailed or at least discouraged by this? I think so. And that that's the point I was, I was uh, getting to a little bit earlier. Uh, there's a lot of inputs that go into these decisions of how to rank products and how to rank content on internet platforms. If, if, if Google and Amazon turn around and uh, are suddenly afraid that they're going to be accused of self-referencing their products, they might certainly slow down innovation in terms of creating algorithms that surface the products and contents that consumers want to see. They might put a lot less emphasis on showing consumers what they want to see and a lot more emphasis on protecting their butts lest they get accused. Again, we are talking with Andy Young. He is a Young Voices contributor. Andy, where can people find your work? People can find my work on my Young Voices bio and soon coming out on National Review. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Josh Crawford, who is a Young Voices contributor. And Josh, I'm going to ask you to toot your own horn here for a moment. Tell our listener a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. So I am the executive director of Pegasus Institute. We're a public policy think tank located in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, We do public policy research and advocacy on everything from urban violence to tax policy. Okay, very good. We've got this is a really timely topic, and and, and this may not necessarily be good news, but um, I'm seeing stories left and right about how the the crime rate has been ticking upward for the last couple of years. And, And it's so ironic because we've also heard a lot of cries to defund the police, you know, over that time as well. Your article in townhall.com is titled Biden's efforts to refund police won't be enough to reverse rising violence. And let's let's talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, can, can we kind of quantify what that rising violence looks like? Is this primarily in major metropolitan areas or are we seeing this in rural areas as well? Yeah, so it is it is all over the country, but it is, of course, concentrated in urban centers. One of the interesting things about this particular increase in violence is it is at its most extreme in sort of mid-sized cities in the middle of the country. So traditionally violent places like New Orleans and Detroit, uh, homicides are up, but not as significantly. The large coastal cities like New York and L.A., things are up, but not as significantly. It's places like Louisville and Birmingham and Minneapolis, Minnesota, and so forth, where we're seeing the most extreme increases. Any ideas why the, that violence is on the uptick? Yeah, so it's sort of a, a, a cavalcade of factors that have come together uh, in a really negative way. Um Things have been increasing uh, since about 2015. That coincides with some changing in some police policy across the country related to what's referred to as self-initiated police activity. That is everything that law enforcement does that's not a response to a call for service, right? So it's motor vehicle and street stops, but it's also what is broadly thought of as community policing, right? Interacting with the public, uh, checking in on stores, checking on abandoned buildings, things like that. That falls off a cliff uh, in the country in 2015, and we see a, a direct 
direct response in increasing in homicides. Obviously, over the last couple of years, uh, COVID-related lockdowns and changes, additional changes in police practices that further remove law enforcement from the community have exacerbated that. And then you pile on top of that general sort of anti-law enforcement attitudes, uh, politicians who are either uh, actively involved in defunding the police monetarily or who are at least parroting the talking points of defunding the police. And so there are huge recruitment and retention problems with law enforcement. All of this left a huge gap where criminal street gangs, who are the primary problem when it comes to violence across the country, could uh, could really take up the, the vacuum that that uh, that created. And and that's one of the things I wanted to get a little bit of clarity on as well was where is uh, where is this primary push for defunding the police coming from? Politicians, I know, are pretty quick to jump on a bandwagon if they sense, oh, it's a trend. I, I need to get ahead of it. But is it coming from the political class or is it coming from somewhere else? Yeah, it is. It is primarily coming from the activist class, from individuals who are really sort of removed from the negative consequences of these policies. Uh, Defund the police uh, polls better with liberal suburban whites than it does in most inner city uh, urban neighborhoods. Um, uh, Polling on law enforcement presence in neighborhoods, uh, African-American respondents actually respond with higher rates than white respondents do that they would like to see increased police presence in their neighborhoods. Now, that doesn't mean that they're totally happy with the way things are going as it relates to law enforcement. It doesn't mean they don't want certain changes, but the wholesale removal of law enforcement from from neighborhoods is much more unpopular with with uh, urban black voters than it is uh, suburban white voters. And again, just to, to put this into perspective, how much of a, of a decrease in funding have we seen taken out of police budgets in, in the last couple of years? So in, in, in 2020 uh, alone, you're talking north of eight hundred million dollars, wow. um, which when you're when you're talking about uh, you know federal deficits in the trillions, millions seems pretty small. But you spread that across individual cities, you're talking about significant reductions in uh, in in resources to those departments. Interesting. Now, are are there any other calls to to get to more federal involvement? I'm just I'm curious if there's some at the federal level who see this as an opportunity, uh, perhaps to have even more um, federal influence, if not control, within local police departments. Are you hearing anything along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. The the protection of public safety and the preservation of public order in this country is primarily the responsibility of local police departments enforcing state laws. That does not mean, however, that there is not a role for the federal government to play, whether it be uh, through the allocation of funds to local police departments, which they've done on, on several occasions in the past, uh, or if it is uh, the, the direct prosecution and sort of um, joint agreements between entities like the FBI, uh, DEA, uh, and so on, and local police departments. Uh, those can be very valuable uh, tools for local law enforcement to combat some of this. And some of what you've seen in some of the more progressive cities that have adopted some of these negative policies is increased call for the feds to sort of step up. Um, and there's there's benefit to that, but there's, of course, downside to that as well, because the federal government is just further removed from the needs of those individuals than the local department is. Is there any danger as well with the, those if, if, for instance, federal funding is is being directed to these departments? It seems like most funding that comes from the federal government always comes with qualifications or other strings attached. 
Yeah. So in the past, uh, I would actually argue that that money has not come with some of the necessary strings attached. And so uh, there have been examples in the past of departments who have basically used that money to supplant local dollars. And so what they've done is cut local funding and just uh, kept funding at pace with these federal dollars rather than their intended purpose, which is to actually plus up officers and things like that. And so what the federal government probably needs to do in these instances is to mandate that these funds be used to hire new officers, not supplant existing funds, uh, because you don't want these local departments to become so dependent on federal dollars just for baseline operations. Uh, you want those dollars to be used to expand and, uh, and improve, not maintain. Well, and I, it, it seems like there's also the challenge of how to strike that balance. If we, I don't want to see everything become a police matter. And, and so right. I, I think you can have too much of a good thing. But at the same time, um, there, there seems to be a very strange dynamic. For instance, uh, a lot of the people who were rioting in the summer of 2020, you know, had to, for instance, I'm just going to use Portland, Oregon as an example. People who were arrested for trying to burn police stations and courthouses and so forth were bailed out and, and, and faced minor charges for the most part, it appears. Um, that, that seems to send a message that uh, some forms of protest or violence in the form of protest are, are going to be tolerated, while others, like you know the people who walked into the Capitol on January 6th after it was open, you know, that's treated like you know, a dangerous insurrection. Yeah, I, I think that folks need to be able to look at both instances like that, right, and say that the use of violence as a form of protest is both inherently un-American and, and unacceptable from a law enforcement standpoint, right? And uh, regardless of, of one's political views on the validity of one versus the other, uh, it was it was sort of interesting to see the way that all played out. The, the people who were making excuses for the riots of 2020 uh, being aghast at January 6th and many of the same people who were aghast at the riots of that summer making excuses about January 6th. Um, uh, I think that the rule of law demands that we preclude violence as a, as a means of protest. Um, and I think that the way that that, that has been dealt with or, or rather not dealt with across the country is absolutely a contributing factor to some of these kinds of things. If you if you look at a city like ours in Louisville, we've had two straight years of record setting homicides. We just had a, a, the front runner for mayor. There was an attempted assassination in his uh, campaign office. Uh, we don't yet know the motives of that individual. Uh, but I, I don't think you can take away that we have lived through a particularly violent period in this city. And so the sort of barriers to entry for uh, violence uh, seem to be lowered in the community. And I think that that's probably taking place in communities all over the country. What's in your opinion, what are the what are some of the things that police can do to improve their community police relations? Yeah, the first thing that they can do is uh, what's referred to as intelligence led policing. Uh, and the recognition that the overwhelming majority of violence is committed by a very small number of individuals. Um, in most cities, about a half a percent of your population is responsible for more than 50 percent of your violence. About five percent of offenders are responsible for about 50 percent of your violence. That's a much more manageable population to police than an entire city is, right? Uh, most of that violence takes place within the subcontext of gangs or street groups, um, and uh, it is interpersonal in nature. It's uh, beefs uh, about respect, reputation. It's retaliatory violence for previous violence. Um, once departments recognize that and flood 
those individuals with resources, both law enforcement and social service, you can see meaningful reductions in violence very quickly uh, because your, your problem population is small. Um, and you can you can appropriately focus on that. Okay, again, we are talking with Josh Crawford. He's the executive director of the Pegasus Institute, a public policy think tank in Louisville, Kentucky. Also, a Young Voices contributor. Josh, where can people find your work? Uh, so, PegasusKentucky.org. Uh, our Facebook and Twitter page will have links to everything, um, and I believe Young Voices shares uh, shares our stuff now too. Welcome you to our fourth and final segment of today's show of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Lindsay Kaiser to the program. She is a contributor to Young Voices. And Lindsay, I'm going to ask you to tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what makes you tick. Sure. Hi, I'm Lindsay. Um, I am a political science and astronomy student at the University of Michigan um, and a contributor to Young Voices. I'm very grateful to them. Um, and what makes me tick is usually American public opinion and thought. I really like to know why voters think the way they do, um, and what makes people lean one way or the other. Okay. We've got a great topic to explore today too, because I think anybody standing at the gas pump has experienced that, uh, that moment of the wind being sucked out of their sails as they see how much it costs to fill their, their vehicle up. Um, I ha- I'm looking at an article you've written for the Detroit news, uh, ethanol tax credits could ease pain at the pump and help the climate too. And uh, talk to me a little bit about, uh, first of all, where, where do we stand in terms of, of biofuels? Ethanol, I believe does count as a biofuel, correct? Yes. It's funny. Biofuels, um, they're still quite kind of contentious. I think there's a lot of debate on whether or not they really are better for the environment than gasoline. Um, the, the take I was hoping to sort of support with this article was that um, because biofuels help the corn industry, which is a big part of Michigan's economy. So this article basically deals with how Michigan could benefit from subsidizing biofuels, gotcha. um, not perhaps not the entire country. Um But, yeah, it helps, you know, with the corn industry. Um, It helps people perhaps see lower prices if we're supporting gasoline retailers, which, as the article mentions, I mean, Michiganders are paying a dollar a gallon higher than last year. Of course, some of that must be, you know, COVID demand as laws are loosening. People are going out more. But lots of the rest of, you know, that price increase is just volatility in the market. Um, And it's, you know... It would be really good for, I think, the Michigan government to help implement a solution that's both climate friendly and, you know, pocketbook friendly okay. in terms of gasoline. Now, I, I'll i admit, I really don't think much. I know there, there are some people who are purists and say, well, I only want ethanol free fuel for my car. Yeah. Or, I only put premium in my car. But um, is is there any is there any. Uh, credibility to, to the idea that uh, ethanol isn't good for your car. I've heard some people say, oh, it wears out certain uh, seals or parts of the fuel system, you know, more quickly than gasoline. I honestly don't know, though. I, yeah, it's, I haven't looked too much into that. I will say what I do know is that um, you probably would have to go to the pump a bit more often if you're using E15 or E85 biofuel instead of straight like E10 normal gasoline. 
Um, so of course the trade-off would then become, am I paying less at the pump? So I could go, you know, once every three weeks instead of once every four. Um, but yeah, there, there definitely is some conversations. There are some conversations going on about whether or not, um, it's perfect for a lot of auto engines, but there was a statistic mentioned in the article that, um, 90% of vehicles on the market can take E15 ethanol with no modifications, like right off the assembly line today they're good. So probably like not your Hummers um, and not your, of course, not your electric vehicles, (laughs) but the rest would be just fine. And and I have to ask this because uh, you mentioned that there are are concerns that we want to do right by the climate. Um, Does ethanol actually, does does it provide a benefit in terms of, you know, emissions? Yes. So the processing of ethanol relative to how we process gasoline, because we've been processing gasoline for so much longer, we're a bit better at doing it cleanly. And then once you burn the gasoline and, you know, once it combusts, um, there goes all the environmental safeties, safety nets that we had. Um, with ethanol, it's sort of the other way around. It's harvesting the corn. There's a lot of work to be done on that to make that more environmentally friendly. But combusting ethanol, any part of the ethanol that comes from corn itself is considered carbon neutral um, because I guess, you know, corn processes carbon naturally um, being a plant. Um, so that component is really great for the environment and the higher proportion of ethanol to gasoline in the mixture in like the E85, um, the better it is for the environment when your car engine combusts it. Now, supposedly. who who are some of the states that, that are leading out in terms of embracing tax credits, uh, ethanol tax credits, you know, to, to, you know, inspire people or inspire these companies to, to embrace ethanol? Yeah, it's, you know what, in keeping with our corn-centered states, it's Iowa. Iowa's ah. the biggest push um, <laughs> for for this legislation, both at the national level with their um, U.S. House rep, Sydney Axney, I believe, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. And at the state level, Iowa's really big on biofuels. It's something that they've dug their heels into um, recently. Um, and I think it makes the most sense for states that grow, you know, a ton of corn. Michigan alone a billion of their um, like yearly GDP comes from corn um, production and sales. So it would serve them well. Perhaps states like Florida may not be so keen on implementing biofuels tax credits at this time. Now, I have to ask you, Lindsay, in your opinion, is it better to, to approach this at the state level or is this something that, uh, that requires a top-down federal kind of approach? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. I definitely believe the state level is much more effective Um as I said, Rep. Axney from Iowa, she um, the legislation she uh, sponsored was bipartisan. It was signed both by Amy Klobuchar and John Thune, um, and it went nowhere uh, because there's a lot of distracting conversations going on at the national level. A lot of um, yeah. foreign affairs is very important right now. So things like biofuels that definitely should be researched further, but also could get a jump start with government funding should definitely start at the state level. Are there other sources through which biofuel can be made? I'm just, I, a long time ago, I, I had friends who were really into making biodiesel and they would go get, you know, right. the, the used fry oil from various restaurants and, and convert <laughs> it into to diesel fuel. Um, are, are there other, are there other efforts besides just ethanol that, uh, that are being, you know, explored in terms of, of creating cleaner burning fuels? I certainly assume through the Renewable Energy Association, they are looking into that. Um, Michigan has not proposed any legislation dealing with other types of biofuels. And I don't believe the House, the U.S. House has either. Um, 
but it certainly seems plausible. I mean, it's just that we have such an abundance of corn. I mean, we subsidize it nationally, for God's sake. We might as well just keep making more, right? So I think that's where this push for biofuels is coming. But it would be very, very interesting to see if there's if there's another option for something to mix with gasoline to make cars more efficient, to lower prices, or to help the environment. And you can also tell a lot about a particular piece of legislation or a particular policy uh, by who is opposing it. Are, are there are there special interests that are opposing ethanol, and and who would they be? That's a great question. Um, I can't say I'm too um, well versed in who is opposing this legislation, other than peop- a lot of auto owners claiming that it won't do well for their vehicles. Um, I would assume that like gasoline retailers would be thrilled to get a tax credit of any sort, especially during the current gas prices. Um, but yeah, and since this legislation in Michigan, the um, Senate Bill um, 814 um, is what this article deals with. That was bipartisan as well. It was sponsored by a Republican, but it was co-signed by some Democrats as well. I would assume that there's not too many um, interests against it, other than we don't know that much about biofuels and how that would affect um, the gasoline use. Well, it sounds like this is this is fertile ground, you know, for for yeah. those who are interested in, in clean energy to explore. Um, you mentioned um, that uh, Michigan is looking at what is it a clean fuel standard by twenty fifty? Right. That's right. Yes, that was one big thing for Gretchen Whitmer in her campaign. I mean, that's a ways down the road, but what exactly do they hope to uh, to have in place by the year twenty fifty? Um. She wanted to, the governor, Whitmer, wanted to neutralize state carbon emissions um, along with other um, clean energy sources, supporting clean energy. But it was interesting to hear her say that because um, the commitment that she made is in its stages, is in its beginning stages, right? With a lot of working groups being formulated um, and a lot of things that, in my opinion, are just sort of a big bunch of nothing. you can have a bunch of, you know, scientists sit in a room and discuss, oh, what should we do by 2050? But at the same time, like people are seeing the impacts of climate change now. So I think it's quite important that the state support its corn farmers and support its drivers um, and start looking into more perhaps tangible ways to mitigate the effects of climate change rather than setting this goal of complete, you know, net carbon neutral Michigan by 2050. I mean, that's an entire state. That's going to be quite difficult. So, okay, and, and we'll the, see. of course, the, the the shock people are feeling at the pump is they're filling up maybe maybe those higher prices if if they if they could realize paying less for the fuel. You know, I I think I could probably be persuaded to embrace ethanol more fully if I re, if it was going to save me some money on a fill up. Right, right, yeah. I guess I'm saying I'm persuadable there. We're talking with Lindsay Kaiser. She's a (laughs) contributor to Young Voices and undergraduate at the University of Michigan. Lindsay, where can people find your work? Yeah, thank you. People um, can find my work at michiganreview.com. That is the newspaper that I currently am editor-in-chief of. And they can also find me on Twitter at Kaiser underscore Lindsay. Very good. Hey, it's great to make your acquaintance. And I hope to uh, talk with you again here on this program. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Brian. Um, I really hope that the state of Michigan will look into other ways of mitigating climate change. But for now, thank you again for having me and have a great day.